inability to face and untangle the skeleton woman is what causes many love relationships to fail. To love, one must not only be strong, but wise. Strength comes from the spirit. Wisdom comes from the skeleton woman. As we see in the tale, if one wishes to be fed for life, one must face and develop a relationship with the life-death, life nature. When we have that, we are no longer bumbling along fishing for fantasies. When we face Skeleton Woman, we learn that passion is not something to go get, but rather something generated in cycles and given out. In much of Western culture, the original character of the death nature has been covered over by various dogmas and doctrines until it is split off from its other half, life. We have erroneously been trained to accept a broken form of one of the most profound and basic aspects of the wild nature. We have been taught that death is always followed by more death. It is simply not so. Death is always in the process of incubating new life even when one's existence has been cut down to the bones. Rather than seeing the archetypes of death and life as opposites, they must be held together as the left and right side of a single thought. Welcome back, listeners. This is Lee, and you're listening to Fem South. Mother and child Sisters young and old, now we see, let's all come together, mm-hmm. come together. South is a podcast, book club, and blog produced in Alabama that is working to raise the collective consciousness and demystify the feminist movement. We are educating women through our book club, supporting women, and empowering women to be the change they want to see in the world. And if you're interested in joining our book club and being a part of what we're doing, you can find us on our Fem South Facebook group page and ask to join our book club. So this is a bonus episode for our three-part series honoring Clarissa Pinkle Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. So I've been reading and discussing this book for several months now, and this has been an amazing project for me. I've been, well, reading and talking with people about this book has been an amazing journey. I've really felt honored to witness people's connection with these concepts that Clarissa is discussing. So I didn't get to talk about every chapter that I wanted to talk about, and I really thought I was finished with this series, but I found one more talented person that I really wanted to share with you listeners, and I think you'll be very happy that I decided to. I also really wanted to talk about what I think is one of the most important chapters in this book, The Skeleton Woman, and so my special guest today is going to offer his insights into this chapter. We are only going to be doing one interview for this episode because it is a bonus episode. But in this episode, we're going to get to hear a beautiful song entitled The Western Ride, written and performed by Matt Myrick. Matt Myrick is my friend. He is a singer, songwriter, 
lawyer, teacher, activist, and most importantly, a stay-at-home dad. And he's going to be giving his thoughts on the skeleton woman along with sharing his beautiful song. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Crossing and the sky erupts Another miner and the people up Spin the pistol but you call my bluff And I'm leaving Disappeared into the desert calm In the honey of the Desert song Wait here for her to ride along and retrieve me And in the dark of my days I let the shadows sing your praise Oh, hammer
You just heard Matt Myrick's song, The Western Ride. And now I have him in the studio with me to talk about his favorite chapter in the book. So thank you, Matt, for joining me. Yeah, thank you. We're going to be talking about chapter five, which is entitled Hunting When the Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And the story in this book is The Skeleton Woman. But before we get started talking about the story, I wanted Matt to just spend a few minutes telling our listeners about him. So my name's Matt Myrick. Um, I grew up in Fairhope, moved away for a while. I've, I've done a number of things. Um, I went to law school. I practiced law for a little while. I got a master's in English. I taught for a little while. And right now, uh, my wife and I, we have two kids, a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I am a stay-at-home dad for the most part, though. I do some work for Children's of Alabama. Um, I am kind of a liaison between the CF clinic, cystic fibrosis clinic, and parents around the state who use the clinic. And I got into that role because our youngest, uh, Telly, has cystic fibrosis, and he's doing pretty well. But it's kind of a neat thing that I'm able to do that. That's right. You and your wife, Danielle, are very active in the community. Yes. We... uh, We've, we've done a lot of healthcare advocacy. So in 2017, when it became clear that Congress was really going to push for the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, we mobilized a lot of people and were very vocal in our opposition. Um, it included writing some op-ed pieces that were published on AL.com, holding some rallies in Mobile, uh, even making a trip to Washington, D.C. to uh, protest one of the health care bills that was presented in the Senate. And you're also a singer and a songwriter, so you're really busy. Yeah, yeah, it feels really busy, too. <laughs> well, so before we get started, let's do a quick overview of this story, The Skeleton Woman, for our listeners that maybe haven't read it. Do you want to do that? Yeah. So it's an Inuit folk tale. Beginning of the story, we learned that this woman has been put to death by her father for violating some rule or custom. It's not clear what. And she becomes a skeleton. Fish things eat all the flesh off of her body. Uh, Next paragraph, there's a fisherman that's gone out fishing, hoping to get some big catch and hook something, not realizing what it is, thinks it's a great big fish that's going to sustain him for a while. And when he pulls up his, uh, his catch, it turns out it is the skeleton. And he's really fearful of it. It's attached to his line. He starts rowing as quickly as possible in his kayak to get back to shore. But the skeleton is following him, and he gets back to shore and starts running, still not realizing that it's all tangled up in his line. And so this skeleton is running after him, it seems, as he's trying to get away from it. And he ends up going into his hut and viewing the skeleton somewhat differently in the light of, I, get, I don't remember if there's a fire, but then maybe the lamplight. And he starts to care for the skeleton in some way and starts trying to untangle it from his fishing line and eventually does pretty much untangle, I think, the skeleton. And after he does, he falls asleep. Um, when he's sleeping, he has a dream. We're not sure what the dream is, but during the dream, it, he, he sheds a tear. And when the skeleton woman sees the tear, she goes over to the man and feeling this great thirst over years and years and years and years of being at the bottom of the sea, drinks the tear. And when she does, it sort of springs forth, I guess, in greater volume. And she becomes totally filled. And then 
she ends up taking his heart and it's beating like a drum or she's beating it. I can't totally remember. She plays it like a drum. She plays yeah. it like a drum and she starts chanting flesh, 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 flesh. And as she does that, she starts to become covered in flesh. It describes the whole process from hair to, I mean, it, it includes breasts. It says the divide between her legs. And then she goes and she lays with the man. I presume they have intercourse and they go away together at the end. Uh, the Right. I just, well, actually, I don't know. Do they go away there's at the This end? is kind of weird, like happily, ever, happily after. ever after. <laughs> but it seems like they sort of like disappear from the community or something like that. But um, everyone says like, yes, this is true. It happened. And Yes. Yes. So what were some of the points that you really liked about this story? Why was this one your favorite? In, in the commentary to the story and one of the neat little plot points, is it opens up with, you know, this father murdering his daughter for violating some kind of, we're not really sure, but we just presume like custom or social code law and he tries to get rid of her. And it's like the father really is this symbol of social order. And when confronted with what she refers to as the wild daughter, something more chaotic, something that sort of shows that law or custom is an illusion to some degree. Uh, he tries to get rid of it. it. It ends up coming back. It's something that you can't really get rid of. Like that, that chaos in the face of order is always going to be there. I thought that was kind of a neat element to the story. It, it, it sounds very patriarchal, too, that the father has the ability to basically end her life, will determine that she's not leading her life correctly, and then, of course, ends it with no repercussions either. Right. Like, I just, you know, going to throw my daughter over the over the cliff. Um, yeah, and then, of course, it's sandwiched between another male who is fishing and and so, yeah, it's all very interesting in that there's this wildness in this woman, perhaps this feminine wildness that cannot be left in the bottom of the ocean for long. It will surface back up. It will come back to life. Right. And it seems that the uh, the fisherman, what allows him to really kind of prevail as a hero in the story, I think each of them would be the heroes of the story, is his ability to confront things that are very unknown. Um not so much at first. I mean, he runs away and he's scared. And But then eventually um, he confronts something that he wasn't sure about at the beginning of the story and realizes that there is beauty in that. I mean, he had a real specific expectation. And then this is what Clarissa starts to really talk about, this this story being a metaphor for relationships and deeper connection and deeper relationships. At first he has an expectation just to take this prize fish back home and hopefully sustain himself or, his, you know, so he doesn't have to keep coming back and fishing. But what he catches is something very different than what he thought he was catching. And so that really gets into this discussion about relationships and what we on the surface want from relationships, pleasure, sexual pleasure, companionship, things like that. But then what he ends up getting is the gift of the skeleton woman, which Clarissa talks a lot about, is the gift of the life-death life cycle. This idea that once the skeleton woman enters the relationship, 
is now going on a deeper journey of self-discovery between the two partners. In this case, the, the fisherman does soften when he gets into his cave. He does let go of his fear and he starts to, to, to pay special attention to this skeleton woman, disentangling her piecing her together, setting her upright, clothing her, basically paying attention to her. So that's kind of the start of the deeper workings of dealing with something that you're afraid of, right? Right, right. I guess one thing I would want to mention, it's a little bit non sequitur, is uh, one thing I thought about a lot while reading the story was uh, the sort of the economics of it. The fact that this woman who sort of becomes like his wife. Um, I mean, they they have some kind of union, um, however we want to define that. The The opening of the story, she's, she's tossed out by her father and she's like cut off from, she's cut off from family. Uh, there's this isolation to them, which I don't know why I thought about it, but it, it just seemed like so different than when you read like Jane Austen or something like that. And there's all the mention of like dowries and family support or something. And I guess I thought about it because in the in the beginning of the story or before the story in the preface to the story, she talks about wolves and wolves being mating for life and being in this in this life death life cycle without even really being aware of it. And that's that's where their happiness comes from. I don't know if she defines it as happiness. Yeah, I think what you're saying is this lack of society. There isn't the societal economic element to this this love story. And that gives it a space to talk about deeper, meaning, more meaningful connections in terms of love, which you can't really do if you're looking at marriage and companionship and relationships in terms of purely social and economic right. uh, terms, right? Yeah, it's like she, she injects this sort of like survival element into, into the story. They're able to come together and have this more true relationship because they are kind of cut off from cut off from society in some way. Right. Yeah. I think that his ability to see her and to experience her and accept her in his in his cave and away from society and away from other people's uh, judgment of him probably allows him to see her in that light too and hold space for her transformation. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, to talk about it in terms of love and connection versus economics. And I think we're in a phase, at least in our culture here in the United States and probably in first world nations, where we can talk about deeper connections in a more meaningful way outside of the realm of economics, because we are still dealing with economics, but we're still very privileged in that sense. We're not just trying to survive out in the in the brush. Right. And, you know, <laughs> and even having kind of an idea about what the story was before reading it. I mean, one of the things I I think I projected onto it and was thinking about while reading was his livelihood is in some way threatened by the woman. I mean, once he, and it, symbolically, it's like another mouth to feed. It's someone else to take care of. It's, it's going to make life more difficult in some way that she follows him back and now he has something else that he has to tend to rather than just going and catching a fish for himself. Like he's already out there trying to, you know, just sustain himself. And now it's like more responsibility. Yeah, it's interesting. It is more responsibility. And but he's seeking companionship because he's lonely. And that's the one thing that in the story that 
prefaces his starting to piece her together is that perhaps because he's lonely, he does this. That's what allows him to soften. Right. So he is seeking companionship, even though, yeah, as you're saying, he now has another mouth to feed. So there's something beyond just survival here. There is the deeper connection that we're trying to have with other people. It's what pulls us out of our own internal caves and and forces us to deal with our own uh, inner psyche. So that's the other point that she makes in here that I I really kind of want to talk about and kind of move towards is... She talks about the seven phases of love, and I don't really want to talk about all those seven phases because it's a lot um, too much for this episode. But I do want to talk about one that she she does mention, the discovering of the other person as a spiritual treasure. And, you know, a lot of times we're seeking companionship, we're seeking pleasure, we're seeking somebody that we can have fun with and hang out with and have sex with and do all these things and enjoy life with. But this story is about a deeper connection. It's about seeing the other person, not just as those things, but as someone that's basically going to make you deal with your shit, you know, make you really reflect on who you are as a person. So it's about being open to doing the deep inner work that is required to really be in a deep relationship with another human being. And so I wanted to ask you from a male perspective, because I hear this perspective a lot of times from my female friends, especially female friends that are in relationships, that they're working on themselves, they're doing all this deep inner work, but their partner isn't willing to do it with them. And so they're frustrated, they're trying to get their partner on board, but and oftentimes it ends up being the the male, like women seem to be way more open to self-help and inner work and doing these things, whereas men seem to be a little bit more closed off. How do you feel about that? Is that a fair assessment? Do you approach this differently in your own relationship? I thought the idea of a phase of love being discovering someone uh, as a spiritual treasure was kind of an interesting concept. I mean, she talks about, she talks a lot about like how relationships early on are, um, you know, people, people get caught up in them and it's all hunky-dory and fine. And then something changes and there's some kind of panic that sets in. And I think that, you know, that's one thing she's talking about is how, how much we project onto an early relationship, how much, you know, it can be easy and you're not really confronted with, you're not confronted with like the full reality of who someone is. And, you know, they haven't been confronted with the full reality of who you are. They haven't had to maybe deal with some of the things that are messier in your life. And maybe you haven't dealt with some of the things that are messier in your life. But I think once you um, you reach a point in a relationship where you do have to kind of deal with things that people have been through and just kind of their ways of being that may not be easy for you all the time. And I, I mentioned when we were talking about it earlier, the lyric in uh, the Wilco song, War on War, where um, he says, you were not my typewriter, but you could be my demon moving forward through flaming doors. And... It's an interesting lyric. I always kind of thought it was nonsensical in a way, but I started thinking about it as she was talking about some of these things. And I don't know, someone declaring to someone like, you are not my typewriter, playing off like us people having types that they're interested in. But also typewriter is so specific, like saying, you know, you're not somebody that I can manipulate. It's not somebody that I can just control. And then to have this other image that is is much different demon moving forward through flaming doors it's you know allowing this idea of allowing somebody to be 
something more spiritual, something messier, something invested with much more energy and kind of a forceful will and being willing to go along for that ride. And I think that's a bit of what she's she's kind of getting at with the spiritual treasure idea. Yeah, I think that's great. I love that lyric. And it makes me think also, too, that you are also a parent and you have two small children. And that just adds a whole nother level of messiness in your life. Now you're dealing with other people and and you're the primary caregiver in the relationship. So you're spending most of your time with the children. And so that just adds a whole nother level of stress to yourself, to your relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, when you when you spend a whole lot of time with kids, I mean, from morning until they go to bed. So, I mean, I'm often with the kids from when they wake up until, you know, around 6.45, 7, until they go to bed, usually around 8.15 or so. And it can feel like chaos a lot of times. I mean, kids, especially maybe four and six-year-old, I have a four and a six-year-old, uh, they're not really, they're not really up with social custom or how to act in every environment. And, you know, they have a lot of needs and it can be really difficult, you know, to deal with the chaos of that. It's, it's almost like a moment to moment chaos. And I often have to step back and remind myself that, you know, you can't, you can't force a four-year-old to do a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, like it can be simple stuff. Like I, I guarantee one and two and three years from now, I'll still be telling my children to put their shoes in the shoe basket because they will just be on the floor. And I think dealing with children is a lot about accepting that other people, uh, they need their autonomy. They have autonomy. You can't just try to fit them into some box. And it, there are definitely situations when, you know, one of my kids will start expressing their will about something. And, you know, I try to, I, I'll catch myself trying to kind of stamp that out, thinking I can just say it and they have to listen. But that's, that's not true. Yeah, you can't, even when they get older, you can't control them <laughs> the way that you feel like you want to and need to. I mean, there's a certain amount of stepping back that as a parent, you kind of have to do. And that's really hard. One of the biggest little conflicts that I had with our daughter was when she was five and I wanted her to swim in the city meet. And she said, no, she wasn't going to do it. And, you know, it was like, my sense, I think looking back on it, it was like this sense of power and authority that I had was like, well, yeah, you're going to do it if I tell you to do this. And it got kind of out of hand and she started crying saying she did not want to do it. And eventually I stepped back and was like, okay, it's fine. And then the funny thing is she ended up swimming in it anyway, because her coaches got her really excited about it. But I don't know. It's, it's something I think about a lot to that example. Uh, whenever we start to get in a bit of an argument. It's like, you know, I need to just step back and let her have, like, you know, sometimes just let her have this. Like she's, she's expressing something and, you know, it's not, it's not in every case that she just gets to decide whatever she wants. I mean, we definitely have to assert ourselves as parents, but a lot of it's about the way that you do it and making sure that they have some kind of autonomy and, and feel that sense of autonomy. That's true. You know, that brings me to another point that Clarissa's making about this story. 
is the the expression of the not beautiful. The skeleton woman is not traditionally beautiful. In fact, she's quite scary and frightening. And we've been talking a lot in our book club because we've read Rage Becomes Her. And we so we've been talking a lot about the expression of darker emotions, anger and frustration. How then as a parent do you help your children embrace the the not beautiful in themselves, the the darker emotions that they need to express in order to have that sense of autonomy or that they express when they're struggling with that sense of autonomy? That's a really tough question. I think that uh, one of her idea about having to accept the not beautiful, as she terms it, I mean, I think that's one of the hard things that people confront in just interpersonal relationships, you know, at, because it's tough to let go of our egos and accept sort of the not beautiful things about ourselves and and I guess as as you get older you realize like you are not the most important person in the world you are not the most talented person in the world like a lot of the illusions you might have had about yourself when you were uh, 18 or 25 don't really turn out to be true and part of that's just getting older and kind of seeing the directions that your life goes in and so that can be difficult to accept about yourself I think with kids I don't know you know as as a parent especially when you have like young children you think that everything is great about them (laughs) so you sort of uh, you entertain sort of the illusions you had about yourself many years ago but with respect to them but you know we we just try to keep things positive and I think you have to you have to allow them to have frustration in their life um don't try to sugarcoat everything. And when they are feeling something negative, don't always rush to try and pacify that. You know, it's always, it's easier to sit down with them. Well, it would be easier to try to like put out a tantrum right when it happens or easier if, if they start crying to try to just offer them something to, you know, strengthen their mood in that situation. But I think the best thing to do usually is to, let them kind of have their moment and then talk to them about it afterwards and try to help them understand maybe what they were going through and let them realize like those negative emotions they had are okay to have. And, you know, it's like remembering to put the shoes in the shoe basket. It's probably just going to take a lot of repetition to get them to feel all right with things like sadness, anger. Um, But they will. It's just you have to kind of practice emotions. And practice naming the emotions, too. That's one thing that we talk about is being able to identify how we're feeling. It isn't always anger. It isn't always frustration. There might be some more subtle words that can be used in that situation. But the more that we can identify and help our children identify those words, that practice of identifying the emotion is, is, is a way of honoring that emotion so that they can be validated and move through it. Right. Move through it. Yeah. Let it let it release, let it go rather than suppressing it. Right. So then that makes me want to talk about the expression of anger and 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 the expression of vulnerability in the other part of the story where the skeleton woman drinks his tear while he's sleeping. That's a really significant moment in the story. The expression of his single tear while he's sleeping transforms her. It's a part of the initiation process of her transformation. It's a very important one. And that makes me think about toxic masculinity and the conversation about men and emotionality. So 
what does that the phrase toxic masculinity mean to you? How does that make you feel when you hear that? Um, can I go back and say one thing about the tear? Oh yeah, like, please. Because okay. I just started thinking about it, about it in these terms. Um, it was interesting to me reading the story when she drinks the tear and he's having a dream and the narrator doesn't say what the dream is. And so to me, it was like this, she kind of latches onto this manifestation of something that's unconscious, something that we can't understand. And that is when she starts to materialize, like she becomes, or she becomes full in some way and then is able to take his heart and the flesh comes. But it's interesting to think that she was not whole or that she was a skeleton before that moment. Like it's almost like that's the moment where for him, once he shows some kind of vulnerability, that she begins to take on some form, some kind of real form. And it, it's not until he's able to show that that he's able to fully realize who she is by expressing vulnerability on his own. So that vulnerability, that's a part of the conversation of toxic masculinity because it, the toxic part of masculinity is the part that will not allow men to express that vulnerability for that vulnerability to be threatening to the masculinity itself. Yeah, so toxic masculinity, I mean, it's it's a topic that's coming up a lot. And I think uh, it's funny that it's become like almost a politicized kind of issue. I mean, it was at the uh, American Psychiatry Association or psychology that for the first time released some kind of guidelines for dealing with essentially toxic masculinity uh, earlier this year. I mean, it was you know, talking about how males are more prone to engage in things like substance abuse, how at the same time men engaging in risky behaviors like binge drinking, substance abuse, typically don't find outlets for their emotions. They're much less likely to seek therapy or help for these kinds of things. And and that, those guidelines became politicized. And then, you know, Gillette issued, they, they put out that advertisement that talks about toxic masculinity, which I mean, it was kind of a funny ad in ways because it was a bit of like virtue signaling on the part of a company in order to try to cash in on a conversation that's happening <laughs> culturally and socially at the moment. Um, but it's it's amazing that, I mean, it, we think of the word toxic. I mean, we're talking about something that really just by its very name is something that we admit is bad, but people are very reactionary and think like masculinity is under attack, like you know, men can't be men anymore or something like that, when really what we're talking about are destructive behaviors, behaviors that are destructive to the individual and also, I mean, destructive to the people around the individual, you know, who can be victims of it. So um, I don't know it's funny that there would be such backlash about this concept being discussed in any detail. I agree with you. It is interesting to see men respond as this being an all-out attack on masculinity, but they're unwilling to let go of whatever identity of masculinity they've created for themselves. But in this story, the man gains the companionship that he's seeking, the love that he's seeking from this woman through his vulnerability. And it, like you said, the lack of being able to express one's emotions to deal with the, the inner, the subconscious, because men are, are less likely to seek therapy, less likely to do things that would help them transform, or men's resistance to 
talking about their emotions, dealing with their emotions, even the darker emotions, is problematic. And that for not only other people, but for themselves as well. And I think men aren't seeing that that's what this conversation is really about and that it would be beneficial to their own being to be able to process their emotions, you know, just simply process their emotions, have conversations about it. And also coming back to the life-death life cycle, seeing that some things have to really die in order for something new to be born, something better to be born. Maybe some of this old toxic masculinity does need to die. It isn't useful. Why are we still holding on to it? Why are men still identifying so strongly with some of these things that aren't helpful in their lives? That they, If they really thought about it, could see that it doesn't do any good to hold on to. Right. I think it's hard for people sometimes to grasp that like the term masculine or the term feminine should in some respect be neutral. Like it's not, there's no like moral weight attached to the term. So we can think of traits that we might associate as masculine. So you could take like assertiveness and, you know, in a lot of situations it can be very good to be assertive. And then there's certain kinds of assertiveness in situations that are negative and can have a, a negative impact on people. You know, you could think about things we associate with femininity in the same way. But yeah, for this for this idea that an attack on toxic masculinity is going to lead to a country in which men can't hit a baseball over the fence or something like that, or, you know, they're not going to be like able to ask girls out on dates anymore. That's, I mean, that's kind of silly, but there might be changes to how that happens. You know, there might be, there might be changes to, you know, particular kinds of culture. And it's interesting that what is masculine and what is feminine is a social construct. I mean, there's biology around the social construct, but if you start peeling back the layers at every turn, you see the social construct that enables us to then pair assertiveness with masculinity, for example. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's because men have been allowed to be assertive. They've been, been in positions of power in order to assert themselves. And so culturally, socially, assertiveness then is, is a masculine trait. Yeah. I think uh, I always go back to, I think Judith Butler said something about the concept of girling. And, you know, it's when it's that moment that before a child is even born, when a couple goes to the appointment and then they announce to people, it's a girl. There's much more than just announcing biology that goes on. I mean, there's a whole set of expectations all of a sudden that come that, that are attached to that child. And it's the same way if you say it's a boy, then all of a sudden there are a whole set of expectations for what that child should be into, how they should act, what they should wear, what colors should be associated with them. I mean, it's it's much bigger than it's much bigger than biology. And I mean, that right there, I mean, that concept, I think, shows the ways in which we consciously and unconsciously try to manipulate bodies into being particular things. Um, I think a lot of the people, and I hate to sound really judgmental, but I think a lot of people that are complaining that there's like an attack on men happening now in this country, either through media or in politics or just bigger conversations on social media. I, th- I think it's almost like a fear of who gets to be included if we start if we start messing with ideas about masculinity and femininity, then 
you know, who gets to be included in these categories because there, there have always been people who have been excluded. I end up being really attracted to LGBTQ issues just because I feel like that's a real battleground for like how people, how bodies should be allowed to behave. And we as a culture tend to make assumptions about how people should behave based on these ideas of what a man is and what a woman is and not allowing space for certain kinds of bodies. Right. Just the gender binaries, which thankfully are being challenged every day now. And I'm really excited about that because that benefits everybody. And it and um, it relieves a lot of the social expectations and pressure that we that we feel from, yes, from birth, before birth. I mean, before the baby's born, the parents are painting the room pink or blue and everybody's getting all excited about, you know, what gender roles they're going to be able to nurture and reflect. So as parents, so yeah, all of that, I'm glad to see that all of that is now being challenged and in and hopefully um, reconstructed and reframed yeah and just to bring it back to the life death life cycle that she talks about i think you know these changes on both in individual both the level of individual psyche and then socially like a more social consciousness i mean people people just need to realize that just because something goes away just because we let go of something that's just creating room for new possibilities and you know the new possibilities can be just as good or better as what came before yeah let's end on that note all right matt i want to thank you so much for joining me and talking about this story and sharing your song so beautiful thank you i appreciate you inviting me to be here so thank you for joining us you've been listening to fem south fem south is a podcast dedicated to educating women supporting women and empowering women and if you would like to know more about what we're doing you can visit our website www.femsouth.com you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website and get up to date on our current episodes our blog posts our book reviews and any events that we're hosting in the local area we also ask that you subscribe to our podcast on itunes or any place where you listen to podcasts Give us a rating, give us some feedback, be engaged with our content. The more you do, the more we get out there in the world and the more we can continue our mission to support women. Thank you for listening. You're on Fem South. Oh.